Hello to everybody who is tuning in. It's Steel Philippe, producer, writer, and transmedia expert, here with another episode of Building a Better Story World. This is the podcast where you can turn if you want to know more about narrative universe development. If you're a newbie, an elder statesman, or someone in between, I'm here to help you craft your story worlds, or to better understand those of others. Our next set of episodes are going to cover details that can give you pragmatic tools to better craft your actual narrative. These aren't requirements for stories, and they aren't limited to story world design, but we will be using them to help you showcase your imagination to your audience in ways that make your vision more clarified or grander. You can go big, small, or somewhere in between. It's all entirely up to you. This time around, we're going to be covering a small but important piece of the craft of writing that often gets a bad rap. Exposition. How do you inform your audience as to the specific facts of your story world? How do you expose audiences to the differences in a fun, interesting way? It's easy to say, in the words of Robert McKee, quote, turn your exposition into ammunition, unquote. But what does that actually mean? We've detailed how to show this in previous episodes, but even I'll admit, a creator sometimes needs to cut through the morass with a machete and just tell us what's going on. This can be because there's so much history to cover. The race of men is failing. The blood of Numenor is all but spent. Its pride and dignity forgotten. It is because of men the ring survives. I was there, Gandalf. I was there 3,000 years ago or because the world is incredibly complex. The Chantry teaches us that it is the hubris of men which brought the Darkspawn into our world. The mages had sought to usurp heaven, but instead they destroyed it. Or because you want a helpful reminder at the top of every entry about what the overall goal of your series is. Before the final blow was struck, I tore open a portal in time and flung him into the future, where my evil is law. Now the fool seeks to return to the past and undo the future that is Aku. You may be tempted to do so as well, in order to get to the characters and plot try to do so with elegance. Remember that audiences have a lot of media at their fingertips. Be efficient. Be elegant. Be engaging. Okay, easier said than done. So, as a case study, let's study one of the classic story worlds. Due to rights issues, it never expanded as it might have, but its single film entry is still a masterclass in building a narrative universe that feels vibrant and alive. Now Roger is his name. Laughter is his game. Come on, you dope, untie his rope and watch him go insane. Based on a novel by Gary K. Wolfe, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was a smash hit for the Walt Disney Company by a touchstone in the late 1980s. It predated the Disney renaissance of animated films, but it harkened back to the golden age of animation with a huge cast of legendary characters, from Daffy and Donald... Does anybody understand what this duck is saying? ...to Mickey and Bugs... Ah, poor fella. <laughs> yeah, ain't I a stinker? To Porky Pig, Woody Woodpecker, Mr. Toad, Droopy Dog, Yosemite Sam, and Betty Boop. Life's been kind of slow since cartoons went to color. But I still got it, Eddie. Boop, boop, doop As well as a whole cast of brand new characters. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Roger Rabbit himself is at the crux of the plot. Framed for a murder that he didn't commit, he's hunted down by a vengeful judge who has machinations of his own in an enigmatic plot that's part Chinatown and part real-world destruction of L.A.'s public transit system. 
Several months ago, I had the good providence to stumble upon this plan of the city councils, a construction plan of epic proportions. We are calling it a freeway. Freeway? That's the background, however. The protagonist of this film is not a cartoon. It's Eddie Valiant, an alcoholic down in his luck, private eye, who was played for a sucker to set up Roger. Pushed too far, he goes on a mission to figure out what's really going on behind the killing of the novelty joke maker, Marvin Acme. Somebody's made a patsy on a man, I'm gonna find out why! Eddie is definitely not in it for Roger, though. Eddie hates tunes. He's a no-nonsense, gruff kind of guy who chugs rot gut by the bottle and is on the verge of bankruptcy. We get a sense of that after the film's brilliant opening. In that segment, the audience gets an animated short of off-the-wall hijinks in which Roger tries to rescue baby Herman, only for the camera to literally pull back and reveal that this is a film set. In this world, humans and cartoons live side by side. What does Eddie think of this hilarity? Tunes. All story world designers should watch this opening to see how seamlessly the filmmakers brought plot, character, theme, and world into view. In five minutes, we have met Eddie and Roger, know that Roger is having marital trouble, that Eddie hates cartoons and drinks like a fish, but is in so desperate need for a paycheck that he must take a snoop job to snap photos of Roger's wife, Jessica, carousing with Marvin Acme, her alleged sugar daddy. What's this got to do with me? You're the private detective. You figure it out. Look, I don't have time for this. Look, Valiant, his wife's poisoned, but he thinks she's Betty Crocker. It's a noir light world. Very light, in fact, with all sorts of outlandish characters. Not Eddie, though. He's grounded. For all the buffoonery of Roger Rabbit, the film wouldn't work without Bob Hoskins' brilliant performance as Eddie Valiant. He gives the cartoons weight by treating them seriously, and he gives the plot gravitas by exploring the depths of Eddie's psyche. Eddie, it seems, is haunted. By what? Get this straight, Greenball. I don't work for tones. This is where we get to exposition. The triggering event for Eddie's downfall happened years in the past. Rather than open with it, however, the filmmakers wisely kept it unstated. They wanted to get to the fun of humans and tunes living side by side, not to mention the noir elements that flavor it. By the way, note how this directly relates to that platterful of fun in Episode 9, a classic genre mixed with another element to bring new life to it. So, how do we learn about Eddie's past? The filmmakers tell us in a classic three-part structure. Reveal, succinctly stating what happened. Revolve showing that there is more complexity to that short statement. Resolve, explaining everything so that the audience has clarity as to what happened. Each step is critical to making sure that exposition feels important and fun. In a trio, they engage the audience by making them complicit. How? Well, let's look to how the filmmakers of Roger Rabbit did it. First up is the reveal. We've seen Eddie drink. We've seen Eddie mock cartoons. We've seen him fretting about bills. What's going on? What has set Eddie over the edge? The movie doesn't beat around the bush. So what's his problem? Toon killed his brother. What? Huh? This single statement frames Eddie's darkness and makes him sympathetic. In a world in which everybody has joy, Eddie is without it. It gives him a reason to drink, to hate tunes, to be who he is at the beginning of this film. More importantly, this statement also entices the audience. Who was the killer? What was the circumstance? What was Eddie like before his brother died? The film doesn't stop to answer. It keeps the audience enticed, teasing things out with the plot, step by step. Yes, it works with the overall plot of mystery, but this can work in any number of story worlds. The lesson is to give the audience just enough and then move on. That exposition is now ammunition, ready to fire. So if you're following along and want to take part in your own story world, 
Now is the time to detail one element of your narrative universe that you want to explain to your audience. It can be anything. Something about the rules of the world. There's something very important I forgot to tell you. What? Don't cross the streams. Something about the characters in it? Personally, I like the university. They gave us money and facilities. We didn't have to produce anything. You've never been out of college. You don't know what it's like out there. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. Or something about the plot. Something terrible is about to enter our world, and this building is obviously the door. The architect's name was Evo Shandor. I found it in Tobin's spirit guide. He was also a doctor. Performed a lot of unnecessary surgery. And then in 1920, he started a secret society. Let me guess. Gozer worshippers. Whatever it is, I want you to write a line of dialogue that explains it to your audience. Make it funny, witty, mysterious, horrific, whatever. Just remember what it needs to reveal. It needs to reveal one element of your world succinctly. Don't obfuscate and don't go into too much complexity. That will come later. It needs to reveal something about its subject. Not just plot, character, world, or theme, but something deeper that isn't obvious on the surface. It needs to reveal something about whoever is stating it. In Roger Rabbit, that's Dolores, Eddie's erstwhile girlfriend, who loves him but can't handle what he has become and is hurting herself as she knew and liked Eddie's brother too. Whoever is stating your dialogue in your world should reveal a little bit about themselves as well. Pause here if needs be. We're going to be complicating this bit of exposition next, so make sure you've got something efficient and elegant. It doesn't need to be perfect but it should reflect as much of your world, characters, plot, and themes as you can fit into a short bit of dialogue. Now we're going to twist that statement just a bit. This is the revolve of the exposition, or rather the revolution. In good expository composition, creators figuratively rotate the facts of plots and characters to show different facets that both prove the statement to be true and give it complexity. Just stating something outright is like showing a photograph. It can be beautiful, but it's flat, 2D, and clear. Revolving the facts of your world will make them 3D, vibrant, and intricate. That's all highfalutin, so let's get back to Roger Rabbit to see how the filmmakers showcase the revolution of exposition for Eddie Valiant. The world, plot, and characters have now been set up, so Eddie makes his way to the Ink and Paint Club, an underground review. Got the password? Walt sent me. There he meets Marvin Acme and Roger's wife, Jessica, who are about to have a tryst of patty cake. Literally. It's a tune world. It's a tune thing. Anyway, Eddie captures this with his camera and develops the film, only to find that the reel also contains snapshots of his brother. Sitting down in his office, Eddie slowly looks across his desk to where Teddy, his brother, used to work. In a great bit of silent filmmaking and musical score by Alan Silvestri, the camera scans across the artifacts of the now-deceased man, covered in dust. There's a pipe, a magnifying glass, and newspaper clippings of numerous former cases. It seems that the brothers Valiant were quite the duo. They solved the kidnappings of Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and their evidence proved Goofy's innocence in a case of espionage. How did they get so good? Well, they were both policemen, way back when. And wouldn't you know it, Eddie had a humorous side to him, posing for his graduation with a clown nose. We even see a photo of the brothers touring with their father, who was a circus clown, as well as a photo of Eddie, Teddy, and Dolores smiling as the Valiants opened their private investigation business. The sequence ends with a former colleague walking in on Eddie, dead drunk and clutching a bottle in his hand. We're back to the movie, which kicks into high gear with news. Lieutenant Santino, where'd you come from? Gee whiz, Eddie, if you needed money so bad, why didn't you come to me? 
So I took a couple of dirty pitches. So kill me. I already got a stiff on my hands. Thank you. Huh? Marvin Acme. The rabbit cacked him last night. Importantly for Eddie, or rather the audience, we have learned a bit more about his past. He and his brother were successful, talented, and funny. Furthermore, they obviously had no problem with tunes. The death of Teddy sent Eddie into a tailspin, from which he has yet to escape. It's not just that a tune killed Teddy, it's that Eddie was so close to him that he can't handle a world without him. It's a great scene, made even better by the subtlety of Bob Hoskins' performance, and it accomplishes a nice bit of exposition by a three elements. 1. It's all visual. The first element of exposition was spoken, so this time around, the filmmakers went quiet. 2. It expands the world. We get to see a history in snapshots, literally in a few cases, hinting at things in the past. 3. It showcases characterization. We see where Eddie began and where he went, in contrast to where he is now. All three utilize the audience's imagination to make them work. By being visual, the audience has to read and imagine the circumstances of each image. By expanding the world, it gets audiences thinking about what this human tune universe was like before the first minute of the film. By showcasing characterization, the audience connects the dots of Eddie's descent for themselves. Revolution, then, is all about taking that first bit of exposition and allowing the audience to do a little bit of extra work on their own. They are given agency in this world. Rather than being told a story, they get to use their minds to tell one to themselves. I will say that this is just one way to heighten elements of exposition. As an example of another, you may decide to use a visual first and then explain it afterwards, as is done in some science fiction films where the plot is kicked off by an alien starship landing on Earth, only for moments of revelation to come afterwards. You can find such a progression in films as diverse as E.T., The Thing, and Predator. When I was little, we found a man. He looked like... like butchered. The old woman in the village crossed themselves and whispered crazy things, strange things. Only in the hottest years this happens. And this year it grows hot. Importantly, however, all of these films spend as little time up front discussing what happened before the plot began. There are only so many minutes in a film, so many pages in a novel, so many hours in a game before an audience grows bored. Get to your story, get to your characters, get to your fun, and then allow your audience the time to ruminate on the goings-on. So now it's time to think about this moment of revolution for yourself. If you'd like to take part in the prompt, I want you to write down a list of at least five visual elements that will expand on the exposition you described in the first beat. This will be easier for comic books, television, cinema, and other visually based media, but think to how you can build out the mindscape for an audience if you're working in literature, podcasts, audio dramas, or other verbiage based arenas. How can you show an audience that there's more to your exposition than what you initially stated? After you've thought of that, beside each of those five elements, I want you to write down a snippet in which you detail how the audience is made complicit by thinking through those visuals. This doesn't have to be long, but do consider how your fans will be using their imagination. What about your visuals will hint at a greater history, or characterization, or plot, or theme? You may want to seed these throughout your entry, or, like Roger Rabbit, you may have a bunch of them in one scene. Either way works, but try to make sure you're not overburdening your audience. Give some space between your verbal and visual moments of exposition so that the audience feels like they're searching through the plot rather than being led along. Pause here to think things through yourself and then unpause when you're ready to go. Our last element of exposition is the resolve. 
This isn't a true resolution like the ending of your story or a scene. Instead, it is the moment of clarity when all is revealed. In mystery novels and procedurals, it's the part of the drawing room scene when a killer's motive is revealed. I still don't understand how you figured out the mystery. It's simple, Professor. The real demon shark is still frozen in your lab. Yes. But Wells used this costume to pose as the demon shark to make it seem that it had been brought back to life. There might be a gunfight after that, or the culmination of a love story, or some other bit of plot. But the motivation is important because it ties everything together before an ending can be achieved. That's because keeping audiences in the dark for too long can annoy them. The smart among them may have put together the pieces. Others will want to have it explained. Most will want to make sure that they have followed along properly. And who framed Roger Rabbit? We get this just after the midpoint in the film. Eddie has rescued Roger from Judge Doom, and they're hiding out in a movie theater, watching cartoons and waiting for Dolores to show up so they can skip town. Eddie hasn't solved the case, but now he's implicated in Roger's escape. Things aren't looking good, but Roger still can't understand why Eddie's such a dour dude. What could have possibly happened to you to turn you into such a sourpuss? You want to know? I'll tell you. A toon killed my brother. A toon? No. That's right. A toon. Eddie then goes on a minute-long monologue, detailing his time with his brother. They were partners and friends. They loved going to Toontown, even. Back in those days, me and Teddy liked working in Toontown. Thought it was a lot of laughs. <laughs> One day, while working a case, a bank robber literally dropped the piano on the pair of them. Dropped the piano on us from 15 stories. Broke my arm. Teddy never made it. The villain disappeared, leaving Eddie without closure. All he has left is the memory of the criminal's eyes and voice. This lack of resolution and justice is a critical element to Eddie's downfall. Luckily, Eddie will get a chance for justice at the end of the film. Remember me, Eddie? When I killed your brother, I talked just like But that's in the future. For now, let's explore what makes this moment of resolve work. As you probably have guessed, based on the two prior elements, audience complicity and agency is critical. We don't actually get to see this moment of Eddie's past, but the language Valiant uses paints out the scene in the audience's mind. In a step-by-step -step fashion, the yarn is woven, juxtaposed against Bob Hoskins' face. He's reliving that day, beat by beat, and then looking back at his life since then, emotion by emotion. He's not so much telling Roger what happened as he is confronting his past. In fact, this moment of resolve brings Eddie and Roger closer together. No wonder you hate me. If a toon killed my brother, I'd hate me too. Come on, don't cry. I don't hate you. Yes, you do. No, I don't. You do hate me. Otherwise, you wouldn't have yanked my ears all those times. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I yanked your ears. All the times you yanked my ears? All the times I yanked your ears. Apology accepted. Eddie finally realizes that tunes aren't the problem. Alcohol isn't the problem. The debt isn't the problem. His inability to face the past is the problem. Everything else is a symptom. Once again, there are other ways to resolve exposition. As in the aforementioned murder mysteries, things tend to be showcased visually to help bring everything together. You can see this in everything from Phoenix Wright to Psyche to Sherlock Holmes. There was never any magic. <clears throat> Only conjuring tricks. Still other stories leave elements of exposition unexplained, either because they are superfluous to the plot proper or because it is a tale that will be told in future entries. 
As we've discussed Predator above, look to how the filmmakers in that movie detailed the alien hunter's skull collection. Do they just hunt humans? Why? How long have they been coming here? It won't be until Predator 2 that we get to see a bit more of the warrior culture surrounding their expeditions, including a weapon from the 18th century. In all its forms, however, this final element ties up loose ends for the audience without completely doing away with the audience's agency. You'll note that Eddie's monologue is under two minutes in length, long enough to give us some of the details without going Shakespearean, describing his past. This is a bit of closure for him as well as the audience. We now understand this point of exposition, and upon rewatch, it flavors everything we see. That is one of the critical points of good exposition, and why you shouldn't give away all the details at the front. You want your audience to rewatch, re-engage, and review your work. Armed with new knowledge, they'll pick up on the subtle points of plot and characterization that you will lace through your narrative. With proper planning, you can see lots of content such as this, making your exposition work for you in multiple ways. How much is too much? How much is enough? That's ultimately up to you as a creator. More important is that this three-part structure fits with the classical rule of three that dominates storytelling. You must reveal, test, and resolve everything in your story, from scenes to acts to entries and beyond, so it makes sense that such a format works here. Reveal, revolve, resolve. And now it's time to resolve your exposition. If you're continuing on with your prompts, I want you to write a short scene or monologue in which you finally disclose, in its entirety, your point of exposition. Don't go overboard. You don't want to contradict your audience's imaginations. Instead, use descriptive language and particular visuals to help the audience understand that bit of exposition that is required for them to understand your world. Like Eddie's monologue, it can be mostly verbal, with just a hair of the visual to help bring out the subtler elements via juxtaposition. You might decide to play it by the rules of Predator instead, and mostly rely on visuals. In either case, make sure that the important elements are described. Where this piece of exposition goes ultimately depends on your plot. Twist endings that reveal critical points of context, a la The Sixth Sense and The Empire Strikes Back, typically happen within a few minutes of the climax. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. But other times, we get a handle on the mystery earlier on to help frame the last half or the last act. I said I want the truth. She's my sister. She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth! I know we've done a lot of work with film today, but these elements can just as easily be utilized in any other form of media you might want to create. Comics, novels, theater, video games, anything. Taking a little bit of time and building out the three-step structure of your exposition will allow you to jump into the plot much more quickly and showcase your characters. Thus assured that your audience is engaged, you can then showcase your world to your heart's content. That about wraps us up for today, however. Feel free to drop me a line at helmstarmedia at gmail.com or on Twitter at buildingabsw or at Words of Steel if you'd like to discuss some more elements of story world design, Roger Rabbit, or anything else we've covered in previous episodes. You can hear that content at babsw.buzzsprout.com or by downloading past episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or any other find podcatcher. More details of story world design are going to be covered in upcoming episodes. I can't wait to see how you take the prompts and lessons herein and turn them into creative fuel for your own work.
Building a Better Story World is written, produced, recorded, and sound engineered by Steel Tyler Filipek. The theme song, Asia, is by Ilya Marfin via icons8.com. All narrative clips are used under the Fair Use Doctrine, as defined by Title 17 of the United States Code, subsection 107, in that they are used for nonprofit educational work for the purpose of analysis, have been transformed from their initial records by audio engineering for podcasting, and are not substantive of the entire work or function as a direct market substitute. Audio effects are provided by freesound.org under the Creative Commons license. If you feel that this production has unfairly used a piece of audio to which you own the rights, please contact helmstarmedia at gmail.com.